Well, good morning. It's lovely to be sharing around God's Word with you this morning. My name's Katrina Lambert and uh, a special hello to all of you who are joining us online this morning. Alone is a reality television show that um, premiered in the US and came to Australia just at the beginning of this year. The show's premise centres around a survivalist challenge. There are about 10 people who get placed in this incredibly remote wilderness location. They're located incredibly far apart from one another and they don't have any contact with any of the production team. They are genuinely alone facing all these incredible threats, physical, psychological challenges in the midst of the isolation, exposure to the elements, the need to forage entirely for their own food. The goal of the contestants is to survive the longest, to be literally the last person remaining in the wilderness. What makes Alone so compelling, I think, is the interplay between the physical, the mental and the emotional challenges of extreme isolation. The lack of reliable food leads to profound hunger, which leads to exhaustion, which leads to staring into a campfire, wondering whether or not the $250,000 prize money is actually worth being away from the loved ones you've left behind and the life that you knew for the sake of being alone. In other words, I think that the program makers of this particular show have created the perfect format to promote an existential crisis. Swinging contestants from extreme demands, physical demands, into the dark abyss of being bored for absolute hours, where all of the things that they have pushed to the very back of their minds come out to play like a chorus line of skeletons. No wonder this show is a hit. Honestly, what could be more compelling, what could be more uh, diverting from our own existential crises than uh, looking at someone else's? What interests me about Alone is just how, how they actually take what is a deeply biblical tradition and they twist it, they gamify it. Alone is an entertainment industry take on what is a, a spiritual pattern, a spiritual tradition that we see repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. I mean, Noah and his family were essentially alone with all of the animals for 40 days in the midst of a global catastrophe. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights alone on top of Mount Sinai. The Israelites spent 40 years as a nation wandering alone on their long walk to freedom. After refusing God's call to go to Nineveh, God causes Jonah to be alone for three days in the belly of the fish, a time out to contemplate his choices. John the Baptist went all in on being alone. He lived utterly alone in the wilderness. And Jesus didn't take one step into ministry until he had spent 40 days and 40 nights alone in the wilderness, facing the best that the devil could throw at him. Paul was such a prolific letter writer, I think, because he had time on his hands, thanks to his extended stays alone in the Roman Empire's equivalent of Alcatraz. These stories illustrate important moments of solitude, of reflection, of testing, of spiritual growth in the Bible. 
They show us how individuals and families and nations have experienced extended periods of being alone as significant moments of transformation in their own journeys of faith with God. If you were to search the Bible looking for a series of spiritual prescriptions, a bunch of how-tos in terms of the spiritual life, well, well, you couldn't look past all of the times in which the Bible encourages us to spend time alone. Silence and solitude, 40 days to cleanse the system and to open up our eyes to what remains when all of life's comforts are gone. 40 days to remember what it's like to live by the grace of God alone and not by what we can supply for ourselves. This prescription is one that was taken up by the so-called desert fathers and mothers who went to live in the desert of Egypt around the mid-third century. This movement was an extraordinary phenomenon that saw so many men and women of the time leave the societies that they knew and the families that they loved in order to be alone in the desert. By the end of the fourth century, the early arrivals were complaining that there were simply too many of them, that the desert was overrun with monks. It's estimated that there are around 5,000 monks in Egypt, in in Nitria, and and a further 600 who are out even deeper into the desert. The monks were so popular that they inspired an entire tourist industry of their own as people went out to see them. Of course, some of them were just gawking, wanting selfies with the monks, but others were actually genuinely interested in what they were doing and why. And that lineage formed by those people who were attracted to what they saw continues down to today. The legacy of the desert fathers and mothers is actually connected to us here at Blackburn this morning. Because without these striking desert dwellers, there would be no St. Benedict with his rule of life. There would be no monasteries scattered across Europe that kept the light of the gospel burning and collected human knowledge in libraries and preserved it during the darkest of ages. And many notable church fathers, many theologians, many important thinkers like St. Augustine would have lost a significant source and influence of spiritual wisdom. And without Augustine, there would have been no Martin Luther. And without Martin Luther, no Reformation. Without the Reformation, no Protestant church and certainly no Baptists. It amazes me that God uses, that God used this movement of oddballs alone in the desert with their emphasis on a personal, vibrant relationship with God and living simply that God used this movement to revitalise and to reform the church. You see, it turns out that God is powerfully at work in the desert places among the people who look for all intents and purposes on the outside to be doing nothing and going absolutely nowhere. I wonder what you and I would find if we found ourselves like the contestants on a loan dropped into the midst of a wilderness. I'm sure that I would find out far more about myself than I'm prepared to know. I'm sure that I'd discover what it is I really missed and what I didn't think about at all. 
what I was afraid of actually, as opposed to what I tell myself I'm afraid of. I imagine that going into a wilderness alone is kind of like that matrix red pill moment where all of the things that I'm addicted to, all the things that make life bearable suddenly fall away and I wake up and encounter the world as it actually is, utterly without anaesthesia, without the habits, without the strategies, without the surroundings and the people that I use to comfort myself to block out whatever it is that I'm trying to not feel. That it's only alone in the desert that I would find out what life is really like with no comfort but God. We live in a time where the pace of our life has accelerated so far beyond what the generations before us could have imagined. We obsess over things like work-life balance, making sure that we give sufficient times to, to, to all of the various roles that we play in our lives because we're deeply committed to being a good son or daughter, a good sibling, a good spouse, an excellent parent, a wonderful friend. And on top of that, we want to make sure that we're engaged day by day in meaningful work. We want to contribute to our church and to our local community, all the while staying on top of the latest streaming series or the next music release or the fate of our favourite football team or hitting our macros each day or walking our dog and doing the dishes. You see, each of these roles that we play takes up time. It demands a lot of us and so therefore we've got to choose. What are we going to do and what are we not going to do? Which means that the questions of productivity and efficiency are often the things that are at the front of our mind. They're the solutions that we most quickly turn to. We think we can do more than we actually can. And we're constantly telling us, oh, it's okay because after X and Y happens, then everything's going to calm down. Except that it never really does. Have you noticed that? I can understand if you're sitting there thinking 40 days and 40 nights of silence and solitude, that sounds like a dream. I can't even find 40 minutes. So as we come to read things like Psalm 31, we experience this extraordinary soothing balm in the depths of our souls. Let's read together. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, the Lord, the God of truth. The psalmist repeats these three beautiful metaphors throughout this entire psalm about God. God is a rock, God is a refuge, and God is a strong fortress. Calling God a rock signifies the unchanging, steadfast nature of God, 
Rocks are solid, they're immovable. So this metaphor emphasises God's reliability and God's stability, the eternal nature of God. It suggests that God is so solid that He is the firmest of foundations for us to build our lives upon because He will not waver and nor will He change. In a world where change is accelerated and everything seems to be at motion at once. I mean, who on earth doesn't need a rock? When God is referred to as a refuge, it evokes God as a place of safety, God as a place of shelter. In times of trouble and distress, in times of danger, we can turn to God and we can find solace in His presence. In a world where we carry around in our pockets each and every day, this thing that keeps bleeping messages and notifications, where we are wonderfully and helpfully contactable with a whole, in a whole range of domains, but we also at the same time feel like we can never get a break, like there is no refuge, like there's an onslaught going on. The idea of a refuge is, I think, particularly resonant. And when God is described as a fortress, it portrays God as this place of defence and strength. God is a fortress who provides us safety in the midst of a whole range of spiritual and physical threats. God is a source of protection. Like the thick walls of a fortress, God has the power and the ability to shield us from harm. And the psalmist connects each of these three images, God who is a rock and a refuge and a fortress with three verbs. This God delivers, this God rescues, this God saves. And what we're being saved from are two things, a trap and our enemies. What is the trap? Well, actually the psalmist doesn't tell us explicitly here what it is but I wonder if the trap that they're getting at is the trap of trying to fill all of the spaces in our lives that only God can fill with everything else. The place we try and fill with a million other things like blaming people or taking care of people or mastering our bodies or controlling our minds or numbing with food and entertainment or collecting all the things that we don't really need but I wonder if the trap is also too about living our lives as if we have no limits. We push ourselves in so many directions all at the same time so that we can fulfil to the very best of our ability all of the roles that we have taken on in our life, all of the commitments that we have made to ourselves and to other people about the kind of people that we want to be in the world. And I wonder if that's not part of the problem, that we put so much energy, so much effort into building a self, to be somebody, that who we are overshadows whose we are. That in our desire to be someone, we invest so much energy in who we are that we forget whose we are that we forget the one who gave us life in the first place and who delights in us and who longs to enjoy this gift of life that we've been given together. 
Our modern world seems so perfectly calibrated to create a kind of amnesia in this accelerated rush to do all that we have to do, we lose touch with a reality that is beyond anything that is immediately in front of our faces. We literally cannot see. The tunnel vision is overwhelming. We forget that there is a whole realm beyond our perception, above our ability to control and to determine things. Sometimes, frankly, it's hard to believe in a God that is actually active and at work in the world, when we never have a moment to raise our heads up from the work that we are so deeply engaged in. After naming all of the ways in which God is reliable and trustworthy, like a rock, like a refuge, like a fortress, the psalmist writes, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's a profound expression of trust, of faith, of surrender into God's care. I give all of myself to you, God. I surrender everything that I am to your goodness, to your love, to your wisdom, to your ways. If God is going to be our rock and our fortress and our refuge, it requires that we hand over the keys to the kingdom of our life to a much greater and better king, which of course isn't something you do once, but it is surrender that is required of us day by day, minute by minute. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. As you know, these are also the last words that Jesus spoke from the cross according to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus calls out in a loud verse, voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The last words of um, Stephen before he died were also uh, those same words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So this morning I invite you to reflect with me on a very simple question. Whose hands are you trusting this morning? Into whose hands have you committed your spirit? You see, death is the ultimate moment in which the things that we have trusted in our lives will be tested. And I wonder, will the things that you are trusting today actually pass the test? Each of us has a wonderful opportunity, a profound invitation from God to live our lives in that place of refuge, held in that fortress, grounded on the solid rock that is God. This is an entirely different way of living than the accelerated, no limits, must have it all, must be it all, must do it all way that our culture is inviting us to. This is the path of peace, a way made for us by the Prince of Peace. Once you walk in this way this morning, let's pray. Loving God, we remember that Jesus was the one who went to great lengths to welcome the children. 
to welcome the ones that had no status, that didn't even understand what status was, that people paid no mind to, the ones with open hearts and open minds who were looking to find a way. So God, in the simplicity and in the beauty, like children, we come to you this morning and we confess the ways in which the ways that we've been living have blinded us to your action in our lives. In which our desire to be so many things to so many people all the time is causing a deep chasm. It's blinding us to our capacity to see you and to take upon ourselves the easy yoke that you long to give us, the yoke of grace, the yoke of freedom, the yoke of forgiveness. So by the power of your mighty Holy Spirit that moves amongst us this morning, God, we pray that you would come and lift those burdens off our shoulders. We commit ourselves, our spirits into your hands, God. For your hands are the only hands soft enough and wise enough and strong enough to hold us. Thank you, God, that each day you renew your mercy for us. And today is one of those days where we have a chance again to begin again. So we choose to begin again with you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.